book of Leviticus, chapter 18. Leviticus, chapter 18, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Uh, Leviticus 18, of course, uh, Leviticus is the third book in the Bible, so start at the beginning. You'll flip through Genesis, then Exodus, and you'll come to Leviticus, and uh, chapter 18 is where we will turn today. While you're turning there, let me uh, just mention it is very good to see Mike and Jenny Guy with us this morning, having returned from uh, Papua New Guinea. It's good to have them with us. Uh, They are here for not a a happy family occasion, though. Um, As many of you may have heard, um, Terry was placed under hospice care uh, this week uh, for his uh, pancreatic cancer, and there will not be many Sundays that we will meet together uh, before Terry uh, is in heaven. And we're going to pray for Terry and Nancy right now. Now is the time for us as a congregation to uh, surround them and care for them as best we can. And we'll start by speaking to the Father. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we come before you this morning on behalf of our brother and sister, uh, Terry and Nancy. Uh, Their children, Mike and Jenny and Cindy and Scott, their grandchildren. Uh, Father, we have prayed that you would uh, heal Terry and in your... Um, uh, providential, wise decisions, um, you, you have chosen not to answer us, not, not to respond by, by granting us what, what we asked. Uh, we pray in these uh, weeks that are to come, God, I, I pray that you would, by your grace, enable Terry to die well. Uh, Father, we pray that he would persevere in his confidence in you. We know that at these moments in time, your faithfulness to him is more important than his faithfulness to you. That's the way it always is with us. But in this moment, I pray, Father, that you would enable him to finish well these final steps he's taking in this race to which you have called him through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that his confidence in you would not waver and that there would grow in his mind and his heart a joyful anticipation of seeing Jesus face to face. Father, we, we know uh, how uh, precious his, his family in, is to him. Would you, by your grace, give him the opportunity to testify to, to those around him that, that as, as dear as they are to him, Jesus is more. And, and I, I pray that you would, would fill him with glad anticipation of the eternal weight of glory that is to be revealed. Pancreatic cancer is, as, as Paul estimated it, its, it's value is it's light and momentary compared to the, the full worth of seeing Jesus face to face. So fill Terry with that joy. Grant Nancy strength and comfort as she seeks to care for her husband. She wants to treat him uh, gently and wisely and faithfully, and at the same time she grieves herself, and that is exhausting work. So I pray that you would strengthen her. Um, We have men and women in our congregation who have walked the path that the guys are walking now, and I pray that you would use us, your children, to encourage uh, this dear brother and sister of ours. Uh, We love them for Jesus' sake. Glorify your name in our church and in the Guy family, we pray in the days that are to come. And we ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying... Amen. 
Uh, as we settle back here in uh, Leviticus chapter 18, uh, I want to tell you about a new research project. It was actually completed a couple of summers ago, but it got new uh, publicity recently. Uh, it was a research conducted by a British sociologist by the name of Catherine Hakim, uh, and she uh, is writing or has written a lot about marriage. And in this recent study she did, she wrote about the effects of adultery on marriage. And one of the things that she said was that she said that the puritanical and repressed attitudes of Americans and Britons toward sex makes adultery a great threat to marriage when we really should understand adultery to be strengthening and affirming toward marriage. Uh, the southern Europeans in France and in Italy have a much more relaxed attitude. Their divorce rates are lower. Uh, people report being happier as married couples. So if we would just get over our hang-ups, we would understand how healthy adultery can be. Listen to what she said. Sex is no more a moral issue than eating a good meal. The fact that we eat most meals at home with spouses and partners does not preclude eating out in restaurants to sample different cuisines and ambiances with friends or colleagues. Anyone rejecting a fresh approach to marriage and adultery with new sets of rules to go with it fails to recognize the benefits of a revitalized sex life outside the home. Uh, this is just one more piece of evidence demonstrating the rapid change that is happening in our world when it comes to sex. I easily could have produced hundreds more examples than just this one story. Uh, that rapid change, plus the fact that sex is such a personal thing, are two of the important reasons that why, when the Bible talks about sex, as it does often, we listen very carefully. Uh, we have this morning before us, open to us, one of the most direct passages about sex in the Bible. And we're going to read it in a moment, but let me just remind you here of where this chapter is in this book. This section of Leviticus that we are going through these days is called the Holiness Code. Um, Leviticus begins with several chapters describing the sacrifices that are a necessary part of the Israelites' faith. God has rescued them from Egypt. The Israelites have responded to his rescue with, with uh, trusting confidence. He has come to live with them. And as part of their living with him, this holy God, these unholy people, they offer sacrifices in obedience uh, to him. And we have seen, we've talked about this over and over again, haven't we, how all of these sacrifices push us forward and point us forward to Jesus Christ. They are a foretaste of him. I know that summer is over, but I anticipate that, that probably some of you this summer, the last few months, got a chance to see some fireworks. I hope you did. I remember when I was a little boy sitting in the back seat of my parents' Buick station wagon with a big bowl of popcorn that we made, uh, sitting in the Perry Town Park waiting for the fireworks to begin. And we'd be there, it would be dark, and we'd look in the sky where the directions where the fireworks were coming from, and there would be just at the very beginning, right, just that one little flash, you, you could see it going up if you were paying attention, and then an explosion, and that was the beginning, ha <laughs> the beginning, just that one little psh in the sky. Uh, and, and then the fireworks would come. You know how that goes. They get better and better and bigger and bigger until the grand finale of the fireworks. Well, in the Bible, Jesus and his coming is the grand finale. And, and Leviticus, all these sacrifices are just that, that little glimmer of that one explosion. That's how, how the Bible works. 
Uh, all those sacrifices have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we read them as somewhat foreign, something that, that we have not any experience in there. It's unusual sacrifices. And, and we don't read Leviticus 1 through 7 to learn how to do things in worship. Uh, well, we don't learn how to slaughter animals in worship by reading those chapters. But not everything in Leviticus has been brought to an end that way in Jesus. Such is the case here with this chapter. What is contained here, at least uh, many of the things that are here, are timeless principles that God has communicated for his people. Reading your Bible skillfully, one of the ways to read the Bible skillfully is to, be able, is to have the ability to tell what remains and what doesn't. We'll, we'll talk about that more in, in just a minute. Um, chapters 18 through 20 are within this holiness code, and they almost seem... It would be easier if we were Hebrews reading the Hebrew text, and, and it would be easier if we lived uh, 3,500 years ago when these were written. Uh, they almost seem to be their own little unit that Moses was putting together. And at the center of this unit, these three chapters, is what he says in Leviticus 19, verse 18. Flip over one page. We're going to look at this in more detail next week, Lord willing. But look at Leviticus 19:18, the center of this passage. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, pointed this verse out and said it was the most second, second most important commandment in all of the Bible. Love your neighbor as yourself. And really what we have in 18, 19, and 20 are a long description of how to love your neighbor. Here are do's and don'ts for showing appropriate love to your neighbor. That's a, a part of it. Love your neighbor is the center here. Repeated throughout, and we'll see this this morning as we read it, these two phrases. Be holy, for I am holy, is what the Lord says. And this great claim of authority I am the Lord your God. Chapter 18, as, as my Bible calls it, is titled Unlawful Sexual Relations, and that is the theme. Uh, let me read it for us this morning. Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 30. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. That's unusual language. Stepsister is what he has in mind there. Verse 10. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister, because she is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. 
Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you become defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Well, what an uncomfortable scripture reading. Uh, Verse 22 is the passage of scripture, of course, that at this point in time confronts us most uh, directly, isn't it, in, in our culture. This is one of the places where the Bible condemns homosexuality. And as such, that verse in itself deserves careful attention. But what I want to do this morning is I'm concerned with the passage as a whole. These are the boundaries around which God uh, placed, uh, these are the boundaries that God placed for His people. He set these principles down for the Israelites. Almost all of them are repeated in the New Testament. The, the least directly a part of this passage is in verses 24 to 30, not because God doesn't judge sin. Those are the judgments right there. I will vomit you out of the land if you do these things. They're not the most directly applicable, not because God doesn't judge sin. The New Testament talks about that. But because we don't have a land arrangement with God. Our, 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 the land isn't important to our faith like the Israelites, uh, it was to the Israelites. The New Testament condemns these sins with, with judgments listed, but they're not the same as, as this judgment. What I want to do is I want to share with you as we unpack the rest of this chapter is I want to share with you five statements about biblical sexuality. Uh, this is not a comprehensive statement of the subject, uh, but some of the most central truths that emerge from this passage. I'm not sure even about the term biblical sexuality. I don't know if that's the best term to use. Um, this is what I, the Bible tells us how to think about sex and, and the role that it's supposed to play in our lives and the ways that we have misused misused it. So here they are, those five statements. First, number one, biblical sexuality is not determined by the surrounding culture. Biblical sexuality is not determined by the surrounding culture. You can see that very clearly in the first five verses, in particular verse three. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. 
when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, there are new guidelines, new boundaries set down for you that God commands. This biblical call to a new life where you make new choices. And your behavior isn't determined by those around you, but by God's word. Archaeologists tell us that the Egyptians and the Canaanites did everything that's in this chapter. This is the normal practice of these uh, nations. It's important for us to remember that, that we're not shaped by the surrounding culture, that we're not determined, that our practices are not determined by the surrounding culture because there are some that argue that if Christianity is going to survive in this world, it has to change and adapt to the culture. Let me just give you three examples. Uh, the, the online magazine Salon, it's definitely a left-leaning um, periodical, uh, recently posted an article about how Joel Osteen is going to need to save the religious right by uh, leading us into a more open, accepting, and tolerant view of homosexuality. We need to embrace homosexuality, the article said, because the anti-gay position of mainstream Christianity has fallen out of favor with the majority of Americans, particularly young adults. Um, Rob Bell is another pastor. I don't hold to many of the things that he believes, but he's often quoted in the, pre- in the press. Listen to what he said. I think we are witnessing the death of a particular subculture that doesn't work. I think there is a very narrow, politically intertwined, culturally ghettoized evangelical subculture. And we have supported policies and ways of viewing the world that are actually destructive. And we've done it in the name of God and we need to repent, he says. Several years ago, John uh, Shelby Spong, who is a well-known Episcopalian bishop, wrote a book called Christianity Must Change or Die. Now, I don't look to any of these men for leadership and help and guidance in understanding what Scripture says, but these are the voices that that we are hearing. And, And I have two responses to this line of thinking that Christianity has to change. First of all, we can't change our views because these are not our views. This is what the Bible says. We didn't write them. We're not the source of them. Uh, these are boundaries set down by God himself. And the second response that I have to that is uh, believers tried to change uh, what they affirmed before and it didn't help. Um, in, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, if you're a student of church history, you might find this interesting, that, that this debate started that led to some of the fundamentalist arguments in the early 1900s. Christians were challenged about our belief in the supernatural. We were told a hundred years ago that thinking people would not accept a faith that believes in things like the, uh, the virgin birth or the resurrection of Jesus or, or uh, the divinity of, of Christ. Thinking people won't accept it, so you need to change what you affirm so that thinking people will respect Jesus who was really a good guy. Now the issue is not whether or not thinking people will believe what we believe, but whether or not compassionate people will believe what we believe, tolerant people, um, uninhibited people. See, it was, it was our grandparents and our great-grandparents 100 and 150 years ago who were uh, thinking about the faith and whether or not it was intellectually credible. Now we are being challenged to think about the faith and whether or not it's culturally acceptable. Frankly, I would rather be thought of as unthinking than as bigoted or hateful. Some Christians tried changing what they believe and it didn't work. In fact, 
Uh, here's a snide comment. Maybe I should edit this out. Uh, John Shelby Spong's church changed, and it's the one that's dying, not our church. Well, that was snarky. Let's move on. Number two. Number two. Biblical sexuality provides for human flourishing. Biblical sexuality provides for human flourishing. This is what we learn about in verse 5. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, the way the New Testament often uses the word live, it uses it often in in, in terms of eternal life. There's salvation. Uh, God will give you life and you will live. That's not the way Moses is using this word here. This word live here means um, healthy, healthy human life, satisfying life, a contented life while you're here on earth. That's the way the Old Testament often uses the word life. In fact, the word Proverbs, uh, the book of Proverbs, uses the word live that way often. Um, There's been some confusion about this. In fact, the Apostle Paul quoted Leviticus 18.5 in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul in chapter 10 is speaking to or addressing a group of um, probably Jewish men and women who were convinced that, that their ticket to being accepted by God was obeying the law. That if they obeyed the law, they would have eternal life. Uh, they're expressing what we all feel, this bent that we have to self-justify, to make ourselves good enough for God. Paul quotes this verse and, and, and squashes that interpretation. That's not what this verse means. This is talking about satisfying human life. God provided these restrictions here for our good. These are the words of a wise father who is seeking to bless his children. Uh, All the gods of the Egyptians and the Canaanites were sexually perverse and sexually frustrated. These are not the words of a sexually perverse, sexually frustrated God. They're the words of a good God who is faithful and kind. Uh, By asserting this, I know that I'm entering into this public debate, aren't I? Uh, This is one of the the issues that you hear. You'll You'll be challenged about this. How exactly is homosexuality harmful to society? How is, we're asked, my gay marriage going to hurt your not gay marriage? Prove it to me. I don't, I don't expect the social sciences to pursue this. Huh. We're in a position in our world in which nothing is true unless a study has been done to demonstrate that it's true. Um, and I don't expect studies to come. I don't expect to win this argument in the public debate. Not because I don't think the evidence exists, but because it's not being pursued. It's nigh unto career suicide to assert this. Last year, Mark Regnerus is a socialist at the University of Texas. He released a report, a peer-reviewed report. It met all of the the, uh, uh, qualifications of good social science. He released this report that suggested that children of homosexuals fare worse than the children of married heterosexual children. And he was pilloried. There were petitions to fire him. Uh, He was labeled. He was a homophobic and a bigot. And he had twisted the evidence. this, This passage suggests here that these restrictions are here for our good, for human flourishing. I I don't expect that to be championed in our world. Statement number three, biblical sexuality is centered around marriage and family. 
Biblical sexuality is centered around marriage and family. The regulations here are aimed at supporting and protecting and appreciating family relationships and marriage. Now, you can see that in a number of ways in this passage. I I think it's clear from verses 17, 18, and 20. Look, for example, at verse 18, it talks about uh, taking your wife's sister as a rival wife. That happened in the Bible. A man by the name of Jacob had two sisters that were his wives. It did not work very well. God gave this, gave this regulation to protect that marriage and, and, and a family. Or verse 20, this is evident here. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife. God wants to protect your marriage, so he outlaws here uh, adultery. Um, now we come here, the preservation of marriage and the family, with all these rules in verses 6 through 16 about who you could not marry uh, what family members were, were disallowed. And it reads very strangely to us. But these rules were very important to the Israelites for a number of reasons. Uh, well, first of all, let me say, they're all addressed to the men, the reason being men would have initiated relationships, would have initiated marriage. So that's why it talks about, uh, it's addressed specifically to men. And it outlaws uh, sexual relations with close family members. Mother, stepmother, sister, stepsister, aunt, uh, grandchild, niece, uh, all, all those relationships. Um, they would have been important because, remember, the Israelites were not allowed to marry outside of the tribe. They could not marry Canaanites, so the pool was getting a little small, and... Uh, the land that was God had given them that was so important to them had to stay in within families. You know how the Egyptians kept wealth and power within their families? They had the normal practice that a brother would marry his sister. Then when inheritance came time, uh, they just kept the money. Uh, that was not allowed here, evidently. And the reason that you couldn't marry these close relatives is because they are of your flesh. They share in your father's flesh. But also, um, and to protect the, the, the sanctity of the family, that's why the, the marriage covenant is not to be made in these close relations. But notice also here, you're not supposed to marry those who had married into your family. So um, if your uncle got married and, and he died, your uncle by blood married a woman outside the family, she became your uncle's wife, and he died, you could not marry her. This law restricted you from doing that. Why is that? Because marriage makes a, her one flesh with your flesh. She married into your family, and she is not technically flesh and blood, but marriage with her, uh, marriage with, uh, with a member of your flesh made her one flesh with your family. So she was still part of the family. I think uh, this concern for your family and your flesh is one of the reasons why that out-of-place verse in uh, number 21 is here. Uh, it's just strange. It just doesn't seem to fit. Do not give any of your children, it says, to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Molech was the god of the Canaanites. They would make him in an iron effigy. They would make him with his hands outstretched like this. They would set a fire underneath his hands. And when the iron was burning hot, they would place their children into Molech's hands. 
This is how you worship to the God of Molech. And the Israelites did this. When you read First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles and it talks about a king having his children pass through the fire, that's what the Bible is talking about. It's a horrible, horrible sin. Um, take care of your flesh. Take care of your flesh by not marrying them and take care of your flesh by not offering them, your children, by not offering them to Molech in worship. These, these laws are built around protecting marriage and the family. Something else that, that comes ar- around this here, by that implication, I'm, I'm saying here, that, uh, I'm reminding you of something the Bible says over and over again. The Bible teaches that sex is not merely for pleasure. Uh, sex is covenant expression. A man and woman marry and they form a covenant and sexual intimacy is covenant renewal. It's covenant celebration. It's one flesh union that celebrates the covenant that has been made. We give thanks to God that that He designed it to be a pleasure. Imagine what would happen if procreation was painful or unpleasant. He designed it to be a pleasure, but that's, that's not the central here. What is central is covenant renewal, which is why in verse 23 he says, do not have sexual relations with an animal. You cannot have covenant with an animal, so you should not have covenant renewal act. You should not do the covenant renewal act with an animal. John Calvin wrote about this. I'm very happy that John Calvin did, because if, I'm, if John Calvin preached about it, it must be okay. Here we go. Listen to what he said. The beasts are satisfied with natural connection. That is, animals are all about their instincts. It is therefore a gross enormity that the distinction between human and animals should be confounded by a man who is endowed with reason. For what is the use of our judgment and intelligent faculties if it be not that greater self-restraint should exist in us than in the brute animals? In other words... Human beings cannot have intellectual, social, emotional interaction with animals like they can with one another. Therefore, they should not have sexual relations. This is odd. Isn't it strange? This is what the Egyptians and the Canaanites were doing. And there are news reports of places in the United States where this is happening. Well, let's move on. Statement number four. Statement number four. Biblical sexuality brings order to disordered desires. Biblical sexuality brings order to disordered desires. And so we come to verse 22 and what it says about homosexuality. And I think its placement here is supposed to help us think about how we talk about homosexuality. This is one of the places in the Bible that condemns homosexual behavior. The Bible is clear, it's consistent. God does not approve of homosexuality. The text here uses the word detestable. He abhors it, he hates it. You know that there are Christians who who argue otherwise. Some dismiss this verse, they say, well, this verse is in the midst of context and nobody's worshiping the the God of Molech and uh, there's not homosexuality going on with idolatry, so uh, if you have homosexuality without idolatry, it's, it's okay. Or some people say that the Apostle Paul, who condemned homosexuality in the New Testament, didn't know about orientation. And if he knew about orientation, he'd never write about homosexuality as an unnatural act because it's not unnatural if you're born to be gay. 
Or they say, this is, the New Te- this is the Old Testament, it's to be done away with. There's a lot of rules in here that we don't follow, and this should just be one of them. The, New- the problem with that is, the New Testament is not open and affirming either, nor is Jesus. What is also clear, though, I think from its placement here in this passage, is that homosexuality is not a completely alien sin. This is sometimes how homo- uh, evangelicals have spoken about homosexuality and, and same-sex desires. It's, it's, a, it's a different class. It's a different sort of sin. There's sins that normal people, that we normal people commit, and then there's that sin, you, your sin, that's just strange and particularly bad and particularly other. But, but notice here, uh, it, it's, it's all among all these other sins just listed among adultery and mismatched marriages. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul places homosexuality right along greed and stealing and drunkenness and slander. The truth of the matter is that we are all broken people with disordered sexuality. Some of you love and crave sex too much. It's an inordinate desire. Some of you don't desire sexual intimacy enough and uh, you have in disobedience consigned your spouse to celibacy. Uh, Some of you crave impersonal sexual intimacy. Some of you long for it with someone who is not your spouse. Some of you want to watch it through a screen. Some of you struggle with sexual attraction to other men or other women. We are all broken people with disordered sexuality. The man who is committing adultery with his neighbor and the man pursuing anonymous sex with other men both stand condemned by God's word. We, we all need redemption. We all need order. There is nobody in this room who has committed a sin that distinguishes you uh, from the rest of us. I, I want us to think, I want us to talk about homosexuality better To the end, I want to read a paragraph from uh, Kevin DeYoung. Listen to what he wrote. How should the church speak to our culture about homosexuality? Since there are many different subgroups in the world, it all depends on which group we're addressing. For instance, if we are speaking to cultural elites who despise us and our beliefs, we want to be bold and courageous. If we are speaking to strugglers who fight against same-sex attraction, we want to be patient and sympathetic. If we are speaking to sufferers who have been mistreated by the church, we want to be apologetic and humble. If we are speaking to shaky Christians who seem ready to compromise the faith for society's approval, we want to be persuasive and persistent. If we are speaking to liberal Christians who have deviated from the truth once delivered for the saints, we want to be serious and hortatory. If we are speaking to gays and lesbians who live as the scriptures would not have them live, we want to be winsome and straightforward. If we are speaking to belligerent Christians who hate or fear homosexuals, we want to be upset and disappointed. So how ought we to speak about homosexuality? Should we be defiant and defensive or gentle and entreating? Yes and yes. It depends on who's listening. One more statement about biblical sexuality. Number five, biblical sexuality responds to the reorienting claims of God's authority. Biblical sexuality responds to the reorienting claims of God's authority. I am the Lord your God. Over and over again he says this. I am the Lord your God. 
God has the right to tell you what to do with your body. He can challenge your desires. He can identify, he can define your identity. He can tell you that certain things are off limits. When you feel it deep within and believe that you are destined to be a certain way, God can say, he has the authority to say no. I saw a headline last week, in addition to being uh, inundated with uh, social studies sciences, we're also studies, we are also inundated, aren't we, with celebrity news. Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke is a well-known adulterer. He's an actor, and he said, we were not designed for monogamy. God has the right to override what you think you were designed to be. I love it when God tells me to do things that I like to do. That's great. I like to read. So when the Bible says read it, I say, woohoo! I like to sing. So in the Bible, uh, not well, but when I say, I, I, uh, when the Bible says sing, great, that's fine. But I struggle, you struggle. When the Bible says to do things that you don't want to do, that you don't like to do, that feel opposite from what you feel to be. There's this claim that's repeated over and over though. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I read this week about an Australian television show. It's called Q&A. You can watch it online. It's a panel discussion featuring people who have radically different views. Uh, They're asked questions, and uh, they have to speak about them. A recent episode featured some Americans on it. Hannah Rosen is a feminist. She just wrote a book called The End of Men. Uh, Dan Savage is a gay rights advocate uh, and a sex advice columnist. And uh, uh, Peter Hitchens, uh, not an American, but Peter Hitchens was on the panel. Peter Hitchens was Christopher Hitchens' brother. Peter Hitchens, in distinction from his brother Christopher, um, is a devout believer. Here's the question that the panelists were asked. Which so-called dangerous idea do you each think would have the greatest potential to change the world for better if it was implemented? Think about it. Which idea that people label as dangerous, if it were accepted, would would best enhance the world, would make the world better? They struggled. The panelists struggled to answer this question. Here's Dan Savage's answer. He said, population control. There's too many people on the planet. I'm pro-choice. I believe that women should have the right to control their bodies. Sometimes, in my darker moments, I am anti-choice. I think abortion should be mandatory for about 30 years. That's a dangerous idea. Another suggested that the idea of human freedom was dangerous. Listen to what Peter Hitchens said. The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead. And that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. Dan Savage said, I agree with that. Hitchens expanded, here's what he said. The resurrection of Christ alters the whole of human behavior, uh, his existence rather, alters the whole of human behavior and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope. And therefore we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous, and that's why so many people have turned against it. 
Notice he argues this on the basis of Jesus' existence. He doesn't say anything about the gospel, the story in the Bible of how Jesus Christ has come and died for us on the cross and rose again. We're more guilty than we ever believed and more loved than we ever dreamed. The existence of Jesus Christ places an incredible demand on you. It is a claim of authority. I've mentioned her recently probably too many times, but her story is relevant for this morning. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield was a lesbian professor of English at Syracuse University, and she met with a pastor for meals over time, and he shared the gospel with her, and finally uh, she trusted in Christ. And listen to what she wrote about um, Christ's authority in her life. This is from her testimony. That night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me too. I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive. I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real and if I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin, lesbianism, that at the time didn't feel like a sin at all. It felt like life plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was actually his life, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all, my sexuality, my profession, my community, my tastes, my books, and my tomorrows. Because he is the Lord. He is the creator. He is the savior. He presumes to have authority over your life. Everyone here wrestles with that. Everybody here. You wrestled with it this week. What do I do with the authority claims of Jesus Christ in the Bible? We wrestle with it publicly. We wrestle with it privately. And according to Leviticus 18, we wrestle with it even in our very sexuality. Let's pray, shall we? Father, you know in this realm we live in a confused and a confusing uh, time. Uh, God, we, we want to be faithful to you. Um, we, we understand what you say in your word, and yet uh, there are people in this room, people downstairs who have very close friends and who have relatives who are struggling with this issue, and they're trying to figure out who they are and who, who God made them to, to be. Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who speak compassionately and clearly. You are the God who, through Jesus Christ, changes us and and orders all of our disorder. We who are the broken ones acknowledge your supremacy. Thank you for your goodness and ask that you would help us to speak and think and live out uh, this, this calling as men and women that you have given to us. Thank you for your kindness and your forgiveness. We pray these things in Christ's name together saying, Amen.